the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I am about to speak to somebody who was in the category of needs no introduction. i got to think of the initials of that. Needs no NNI. Is it definitely an NNI? Ben Shapiro. But... Uh, you should know he's co-founder of the Daily Wire, which I not only read, but I I actually have a paid subscription to. I believe in supporting these things. He's host of the Ben Shapiro podcast. He's also this year's Prager Hughes commencement speaker, taking on Woke Incorporated. And tomorrow, his latest book, which of course I have purchased is The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent. The Authoritarian Moment. Ben Shapiro, great to talk to you. Hey, great to talk to you, Ben. I really appreciate the purchases. I used to say that I used to thank people for helping put my kids through college, but since I am less and less planning on putting my kids in college at all, uh, I'll just thank you for the money. <laughs> That's a good one. I'll, I pretty much understand your position on that. Anyway, it's how old are your kids? Uh, they are seven, five, and one. Oh my God, that is one lively house, Ben. Hey, I got a big question before your book. You left California. We were essentially neighbors for years. I mean, you know, within twenty-five minutes of one another in L.A., you moved to Florida, a free country from a totalitarian one. How does it feel? It is the best move ever. Dennis, I've been trying to convince you for a long time that you are committing an act of grave immorality by paying taxes to the California state government. And let me just tell you, this state is spectacular. And there's a reason why half of the people who I was friends with in California have already tried to buy places here, skyrocketing real estate over here. It's, it's, it's not an irrational, crazy place. It's not a place where people feel that it is somehow morally required of them to live worse lifestyles in order to please some sort of pagan god of equity. And it's it's pretty fantastic. I mean, people are walking around without masks after they're vaccinated, for example. And we also pay zero state income tax and have better public services than California. And it doesn't make a better or uh, or more pure human being to have people shooting heroin into their feet outside my home. <laughs> it's pretty great. You know, things that, that I took for granted when I was a kid and that disappeared over the course of time in California are still very much present in Florida. What if they elect a Democrat? Well, then I'll have to go to Alabama or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, no. I, 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 that, no, it's a very fair answer. But how much would it change? Um, I, see, I don't think that it would radically change in the sense that this is or was a very purple state. Uh, so even when there were Democrats, like you know, Charlie Crist was, I believe, a Republican at that point. He was governor. Um, yeah, they, they've had Democratic governors. In the past, this last election cycle uh, with DeSantis and Gillum was extremely close. 
I think DeSantis is going to walk away with it this time. I, th- I think he's going to win by four or five points going away. The state has gotten significantly more red over the past several years. Donald Trump won this state by about 100,000 votes in 2016. He won it by almost half a million votes in 2020. Wow. Uh, and that's because a lot of people are, are seeking a place that is not like the rest of the country, that still has a lot of cosmopolitan feel because Miami's a big city, Fort Lauderdale's a big city, Orlando's a big city, uh, and all those resources are available. But you don't get along all the baggage. So a lot of people, like, this is also one of the things people in Texas are worried about, don't California, my Texas, and all of that. The people who are moving out of California, typically speaking, are much more red than the general population of California. And the same is true in New York and Connecticut. When people decamp to Florida, they're doing so generally for a reason. So not to make it blue. No. I think that the, there was a study recently that came out that showed that Florida's immigrants community uh, actually had made the had made the state about one percent more red over the course of the last three years. Wow! So your book, the the authoritarian moment, which is it's almost depressing to even say the title of your book that we're living in an authoritarian moment in the United States of America. Uh, by the way, again, folks, it's up at DennisPrager dot com, and and anything Ben writes is is just obligatory reading. And as I said, I've just uh, purchased it myself. By the way, do you read the Audible? Uh, yeah, I do. So this so will be the only Audible that I won't increase the speed on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you don't need a two-time speed on, on the Audible. No, no. <laughs> Not even 1.3. So I'm curious, do you think the authoritarian moment applies to the whole West? Uh, I, I do think that it is unique to the United States. I think you're starting to see, uh, in some cases, a sort of pullback from it in Europe. I, I think that when you see members of the French government, for example, saying, don't bring that woke crap over here, and when you see Eastern Europe, which has become significantly more right-wing and, and is rejecting uh, a lot of these... Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Authoritarianism we're seeing. Uh, I, I do think that it's uniquely American, and it is. Uh, I think it's odd because normally the United States tends to pick up bad ideologies from Europe, but this is one we're actually exporting to Europe, which is kind of a unique thing historically. Would you have written the authoritarian moment fifteen years ago? No, no. I mean, I, I think that there there were other problems in the country fifteen years ago, but when I talk about how we're living in this sort of authoritarian moment. I don't mean that the government of the United States is, is you know, fully authoritarian, controlling every aspect of, of our lives. I think that we're living in a time when our fellow Americans 
are increasingly embracing a sort of authoritarian mindset. And not only that, I think that they've mainstreamed that and mainlined that into institutions of power. I start off the book by talking about the kind of myth of January 6th that's been created in the mainstream media, which is that January 6th was not a bunch of idiots and morons and, and people who are misguided invading the Capitol building to do harm to people because law enforcement was not there and staffed up in, in appropriate numbers. And then within a few hours, everybody had been arrested and life went on as normal. That the, the left treated that as though that was indicative of risk to democracy on a serious level, that we were, we were five minutes away from the entire democracy being overthrown, and therefore all of their opponents need to be silenced. Uh, I think that, you know, that January 6th is a really good Rorschach test for where you think the authoritarian threat is coming from. Is the authoritarian threat coming from, you know, people who are misguided, misinformed, and, and idiotic doing things with no institutional support, or is the authoritarian threat coming from major institutions of power, which in response to January 6th, decided to, for example, de-platform parlor or pressure social media companies into talking Donald Trump and banning quote-unquote misinformation or companies that were forced to relocate their, their activities from red states and defund Republican politicians or educational systems that have crammed down particular points of view on students. The, the thing that I'm pointing to in the authoritarian moment is that all the major institutions of our society have been weaponized against people who think not like the mainstream left. And this is a serious danger. It's a real danger because that only ends one of two ways governmentally. One is that that exact perspective gets mirrored in the government, in which case the government does become more authoritarian. And the other is that there's a really ugly backlash that is not classically liberal in any serious way. And, and I don't think any of that is, is good for the future of the country. That's right. So everything has been weaponized. Is there? So I think, for example, of the NBA, right? Is that a fair example, or Major League Baseball oh, yeah. pulling pulling the uh, the All Star Game out of Georgia? Exactly. So every single area, what the book does, it goes chapter by chapter, it picks a different institution, and it explains not only that it has been weaponized, but how it has been weaponized. And so, if you're looking at entertainment, the the attempt to take neutral spaces and then politicize those spaces, and then declare that if you refuse to go along with the politicization, it is you. Who, have, who have, you are somehow morally derelict. If you, don't, if you turn off the NBA because you don't wish to see Black Lives Matter slogans festooning the court, all you want to do is watch basketball, this means, of course, that you are implicitly racist, and you are, it is you who are the problem. You, you morally lack. When, when, when you look at the institutions uh, ranging from the perversion of science, the scientific institutions of our country, uh, to the media, which obviously has been renormalized, what we've been watching over the period of time is a very small group of very mobilized and aggressive radicals who basically cowed the rest of the country into silence. And this is where I think the hope lies, is that there will be a majority that eventually stands up and says no, but what the studies tend to show is that all it takes in order to quote-unquote renormalize an institution is about 20% of the population of any institution aggressively insisting that its point of view be listened to. Most people are conflict-averse, and so if they're in the middle, or if they don't really have a strong perspective, they tend to just cave to that 20%. And you can see it in institution after institution. Like, where exactly were the NBA owners when all this was happening? Why, and some of those NBA owners, by the way, I'm sure are conservative. Where were, where were the NBA owners saying, you know what, I, I think that we'd be better off not, for example, turning the NBA into a political product. I don't know of an example of the left, not liberals, but of the left taking power in any, any country or in any institutions, and allowing dissent. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult for me to come up with one. 
I can't, I can't come up with one. Okay. That's very important for people to understand. All right, talk. So go to corporations. So I think that conservatives, because corporations operate off the profit motive, they, they believe that the corporations were congenitally predisposed toward being conservative, right? They didn't have to preserve the profit motive. All they care about is making money, so why would they allow the woke to sort of take over the place? But that mistakes what corporations essentially are, which are risk mitigation machines. So there are people at the top of corporations who initially take the risk to create the business. But then once the business is running, they have to mitigate risk. And there's risks from without and risks from within. And so if you are a corporate head, take the risk from without first. What you want to avoid is the media blowing back on you and making you an issue and tanking your stock price. You don't want to be in a headline. And so if you have a woke left inside your company who's leaking to the New York Times, you have a couple of choices. You can either please the woke left and then it never becomes a national issue, or you can fight the woke left, in which case you end up being on the front pages of the New York Times. And that has some pretty significant downstream effects because the left is not tolerant when it comes to consumption of products. There's a study from Harvard Business School recently where they took a, a poll of people across the political spectrum, their opinions on a generic corporation that they made up. The, the corporation is called Jones Corp. If people perceived that Jones Corp was apolitical, it ranks pretty highly. People said, oh, it's probably a pretty good corporation. If it ranks, if people thought it was liberal, it ranks exactly the same as if it was thought apolitical. If it ranks conservative, it dropped 30% in the approval ratings, all from people on the left who said this corporation is no longer worthy of my business because it doesn't think like me. And so if you're a corporate head and you know that there's this intransigent minority of consumers uh, and of staffers who can damage your business by that much, what you end up doing is basically just conceding to them, particularly if they take it incrementally. If they don't ask to take over all the auspices of the corporation, all they want is just a little diversity training. All they really want is Robin D'Angelo to lecture you on your whiteness. All they really want is to make sure that you have a scholarship fund for particular races of people, but not other races of people. Corporate heads will say, okay, well, you know what? I'd rather be on the side of the angels and maintain my position than have to go to war with people inside my own company. And you can see this play out in real life. I mean, there was a company called Coinbase recently in Silicon Valley where the head of the company, to his great credit, put out a statement to his employees saying, I don't want anybody at the company talking politics on our internal Slack channel because all it does is create conflict. And 60 of his employees quit. 60 of his employees said, that's not woke enough. That's not appropriate. You're telling me that my politics are offensive, I'm leaving. And it became a national story. It was covered in the New York Times, et cetera. So unless you are a corporate head with the wherewithal to just say no to these folks, you tend to cave, and corporations are not famous for their courage. That's an amazing story you just told. I did not know of it. What was the name of the company? The company is called Coinbase. And to the, the, the credit of the guy who ran the guy named Brian Anderson, he stuck by it. He so what has happened? Is, is, is Coinbase hurting financially as a result of this position? Nope, now they're fine, uh, because they actually probably got rid of a bunch All of All right, so wait a minute. So yeah. the fact is, they're risk-averse, but they, they may be paranoid. Yes, so this is correct. And, and Dennis, you know this because of the advertising business, right? Every time you trend on Twitter, everybody's afraid that advertisers are going to pull their money. I mean, I have this issue on my show as well. And the reality is the number of people who actively carry through things like boycotts is very, very low. But everybody is so risk-averse that they're, they're, they're scared of their own shadow. All it would take is some corporate heads saying, listen, we advertise on a wide variety of programming, stick it for all of this to end. But, you know, again, that would take a little bit of, of wherewithal and, and a little courage. Right. So the issue really isn't I'm going to hurt my company. It's I'm pretty much a coward. 
I mean, I think that I think that's exactly the issue. I think corporate cowardice is endemic, and I think that that sort of cowardice carries, you know, all the way across the spectrum. I think that that's true in sports also. I mean, it was the NBA that you mentioned that was, you know, basically telling Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, that he wasn't allowed to tweet about freeing Hong Kong. Meanwhile, the NBA is explaining to Americans how racist and terrible we are. So, what happened in Cleveland? the vast majority of people in Cleveland did not want the Indian's name dropped. It's 105 years old. It's a tradition, if nothing else. It does zero in terms of insulting the, the Native American. It honors them. They're Indians. Uh, so what was the thinking of the president of the Cleveland Indians to drop the name? I mean, I think that the, the thinking was simply, I'm going to get credit from the left, and I don't want them coming after me every season. I mean, what's amazing about that, by the way, is that the, the Indians supposedly were named after a Native American player named Louis Sokolexis, because the, the, the team was originally called the Cleveland Spiders. And then between 1866 and 1869, they had a player named Louis Sokolexis, who was Native American, he was pretty popular, and people started calling the team the Indian. And then when they sought to rename the team, that, that sort of came up again. But they, they, they thought that they were going to get a win from the left. There's no such thing as a win from the left. They're just avoiding the temporary loss, right? They, they, what, what the left is doing right now is just the perfect, perfect example of the old Winston Churchill line that these are people who are, are feeding the alligator, hoping that it will lead them last. And, and I think that that's exactly what you see here. There's no mass outcry. But, Dennis, I think the, the key point in all of this is that it is the changing line that is the point. I don't really, like people on the right, we spend all of our time trying to say, what, what's the through line to what the left wants? What exactly are they shooting for? And the answer is there is no through line. You're fond of saying that untruth is sort of an element of the left, that they don't care about truth. But it's not just they don't care about truth. It's that standards must be malleable because then they can force you to abide by whatever standard it is today. Right? The standards literally change on a dime. And if you're not in consonance with those standards, you'll be forced to atone. So it's, it's this constantly shifting definition of what's right and, and what's wrong and what allows you to get off the hook. And you have to constantly be going and bringing sacrifices to sort of the pagan gods of the of the radical left here in order to keep them off your case. And so it, it really operates more like a, a philosophical cult than it does like any sort of coherent political philosophy. I take it that your read is that they win because there's a lack of courage on the part of those who differ. Yes, that's right. I mean, there's just a bunch of people who are in the middle who either don't know what's going on, don't want to know what's going on, or are risk-averse and conflict-averse. And you can see that. And, and so what I say in the book is that the future of the country, as much as I'd love to say it's in you know, the hands of conservatives, and we have to remain strong and vocal, the future of the country is going to be on people who are either apolitical or people who consider themselves mainstream liberal but not hardcore left. And you know, that, that's you know, an open question. I think there are a lot of people who consider themselves, you know, Democratic voters who may not be up for the wokeness, who may not be interested in the predations of the radical left, but sort of agree with the radical left on a lot of policy prescriptions. And they need to make a decision. Are, are they willing to pursue leftist utopia at the cost of individual rights and, and a functioning republic? Or do they you know, maybe put off their utopian dreams for a moment uh, and preserve those rights that are not in danger, particularly from the right, but are in serious danger from the left? And I want to just emphasize to my listeners, many of whom don't understand or actually differ with me in my adamant distinction between liberal and left. 
And among other reasons I do that, aside from it, I believe it's, it's intellectually accurate, is to pry the liberal away from the left. You do not believe in defunding police. You do not believe in all black dormitories and all black graduations. You do not believe that Israel is an apartheid state. I mean, at what point does the liberal finally say the left is the danger, not the right? This is exactly it, Dennis. It's a, it's a distinction I believe I actually adopted from you between liberal and left because I think that it's so important. I mean, over at, over at Daily Wire, we saw leftist tears tumblers. There aren't so liberal tears tumblers, and that's because I rejected that. <laughs> I don't think that liberal tears are worth drinking. I think leftist tears are, are worth drinking only because of the threat that they pose for the nation. But I think that listen, I have a lot of friends who are liberal, and the way I distinguish between liberal and left are liberals disagree with me on taxes and Leftists want me to be shut down and want to destroy my business and want to control every aspect of my life. It, those are not the same thing. Are you a sports fan? I'm a, yeah, I'm a huge baseball fan. What have you done? I'm, I have no idea what you'll answer, and I'm just curious. So what have you done? Can you watch MLB right now? So last year, particularly when they were super woke, I didn't watch a single game. So I was an MLB TV subscriber last year, and I just stopped subscribing to MLB.com. This year, they moved away from it, and so I resubscribed. And that's sort of the attitude that I've taken with a lot of these sorts of businesses, is if they wish to draw closer to wokeness, then I will not engage with the business. And if they if they draw away from it, then I'm happy to engage with the business. If, if they go back to woking it up, then I'll stop watching baseball as much as I love baseball. Will the NFL be hurt by having uh, the quote-unquote black national anthem played every game? Yes. I mean, I think that the, the way they're avoiding that is by not playing it on the telecast, probably. And they'll just hope that they get sort of, they get to have their cake and eat it too, right? They get to have the wokes cheer them on for, for doing it, but they don't actually have to show it to the general public. They did this with the, with the Super Bowl last year. I was at the Super Bowl last year. They had much more sort of left-leaning material before the Super Bowl, which just never appeared nationally. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Ben, you're doing great work. It's a great, uh, great pleasure to talk to you. Ben Shapiro, podcast, Daily Wire. He has uh, the commencement address this year at PragerU. We have one every year. They're wonderful, and so, of course, is his. But most important right now, tomorrow, his book, The Authoritarian Moment. Ben, good luck. Keep it up. Keep it up. See you in Florida. I appreciate it, and we're going to get you here sooner or later. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Dan Proft for townhall.com. In his majority opinion, the 1943 case of West Virginia v. Barnett, Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson wrote, Compulsory unification of opinion achieves only the unanimity of the graveyard. It stands as one of the great holdings in First Amendment jurisprudence. The Biden administration has essentially taken the opposite view, that only through the elimination of dissent can we truly be free, thus the rollout of Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy's truth ministry. The same social media platforms that banned a certain former president of the United States aren't doing enough to quash cognitive dissonance on COVID, says Minister Murthy. Misinformation must be banned to save lives, they say.
what constitutes misinformation, who decides. Any statement that doesn't come from a credible source, they say. Which are the credible sources? Who decides? We get no answers to questions that would define the parameters of legitimate discussion because the Surgeon General isn't interested in winning an argument or even making one, but rather only in enforcing an opinion. And to the graveyard goes a free society. I'm Dan Prof. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.